Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hello, Chris. Good to talk again. Uh, it's been a pretty exciting time in the world of economics, and I guess we can always say that. Uh, but lots of stuff going on in the world at the moment. We've had the evolving uh, Chinese situation with the development company um, Evergrande. We have a lot of stuff happening on the inflation front, particularly in relation to central bankers coming out with official pronouncements. But we also have a lot of stuff going on with global supply chains, with shortages and um, upward pressure on, on, on a lot of things in the supply chain. So I think we'll talk about these things today, if we may. I want to start with the Evergrande situation in China. Um, I guess since the end of last week it has, and the beginning of this week, it has really become quite a significant issue. It has been bubbling away in the background for some time. Um, it's something that has been occasionally alluded to, uh, but it, it has hit the headlines because of serious uh, debt problems that have come to the fore because of uh, bond interest repayments and bank repayments and so on. Um, it was interesting from a market perspective, and I guess uh, having worked in markets for a lot of years like yourself, um, I could certainly put my hand up and say that the more time goes on, the less I understand actually what markets do and what they're all about. Because at the beginning of the week, when this story really hit, we got a lot of weakness in Asian equity markets, not surprisingly. And then that 
uh, delivered a pretty difficult day on Monday um, in Europe and the United States. But since then, um, markets have um, basically gone ahead again. And even in the last 24 hours, while Asian markets starting to get hit a little bit again, US markets, European markets doing well today. So what's your perspective on this? I heard it described by a few people during the week as China's Lehman moment. What do you think? Well, I think it's a potential Lehman moment. And whether that potential becomes reality and we get a full-blown financial crisis depends on how the Chinese authorities handle it. This has been a very well-telegraphed default. We've known this company has been struggling for a while. And more generally, we know that the uh, Chinese property sector is leveraged up to the gingangs. What, is, what does that technical term mean? It means that they've borrowed an awful lot of money to build an awful lot of houses. And sitting in Dublin, Jim, you would perhaps recognize some of the uh, characteristics of this property boom in China. They've built an awful lot of housing that is not lived in. They reckon that in China, there are enough empty apartments to house about 90 million people. That's the population of the UK could all move to China and solve the housing crisis in the UK. They are now demolishing unused apartments. There have been some lots of social media clips in recent weeks of vast housing estates that have uh, been partially finished, being um, blown up, uh, sort of shades of ghost estates from Ireland's recent past. And there are an awful lot of developers like Evergrande who have borrowed an awful lot of money to build these apartments. And the Chinese government is basically saying enough. This has gone too far, too fast. And in and of itself, I think they, they've made that decision because the, all the debt that's been built up by these property developers is so like what happened in Ireland and elsewhere prior to our own financial crisis that the Chinese authorities have finally had enough. But it also resonates with Xi Jinping, the boss of China, is really returning to China's Maoist socialist roots, in which he's declaring that capitalism must work for everybody and that uh, it shouldn't just work for a few. The original leader back in 1978, Deng Xiaoping, I think his name was, who set China on the capitalist path, said that, yeah, prosperity for all, but we've got to make a few peasants rich first. We can't make everybody rich first. And that was a very simple soundbite of his, his philosophy. And Xi Jinping is now rowing back from that, going back to Maoist roots and reining in a lot of companies. He started with the tech sector, and it looks like these moves against these property developers is at least part of that, if not for its own good reasons. So whether or not it becomes a Lehman moment depends on what they do next. And they could make a mistake and mess it up. That's not beyond the realms of possibility. But I think what markets are betting on, and it's probably right in my view, is that China won't mess it up, that it's going to be messy, but not catastrophic. What it does mean, however, is that from both of those perspectives, the policy against unfettered capitalism and the policies designed to put the foot on the neck of the property developers, because property development has been the main source or one of the main sources of Chinese growth since the late 1970s. And it means that China's growth going forward is going to be less than it certainly has been in recent years. It's already fallen 
And I think it's going to fall further. So I think the main implication for this is not a Lehman moment, but the extent to which the world economy has relied on Chinese economic growth to keep it going. I think that's probably going to fade a wee bit. Yeah, depending on what metric you use, China is the second largest economy in the world. So has been a very significant player. And during the great financial crash, uh, the performance of China during that crash was actually what kept the overall global economy from uh, going into a much worse slump than we actually saw. So China does play and has played an incredibly important role in the global economy. Uh, but if you look at some of the statistics that come out of China at the moment, and I know uh, one thing that China lacks is transparency. You just wonder what statistics and facts you can actually believe or not. But uh, there's a statistic doing the rounds that the construction sector accounts for just under 30% of GDP at the moment. And that's reminiscent, of course, what happened to Ireland back in 2006, 2007. But the story around um, Evergrande is interesting. It's the biggest real estate developer in China and is the most indebted in the world. Last year, it had a worth of 41 billion US dollars. It's now worth less than 3.7 billion. The share price is down 87%. Uh, there are 80,000 private retail investors um, who have about $6.2 billion in outstanding wealth management products. And there is a suggestion that the company was using billions of dollars raised by selling wealth management products to retail investors to plug funding gaps uh, and even to pay back other wealth management investors, um, including the executives of the company. So this also smacks of uh, fraud and corruption within the company. And uh, it, it is classic. Um, and it's I think it's absolutely classic um, when you get these sorts of huge very, very indebted companies, how they actually implode. And as, as you say, the impact it has on the Chinese economy and in turn, the impact that has on the overall global economy will be just totally dependent on how the government in what is a centrally planned economy still basically actually handles this. And as you say, the market perspective is that the Chinese government will do the right thing. They will save this company and prevent it from going into um, a dirty bankruptcy that will create serious contagion throughout the Chinese economy. But um, there are retail investors particularly um, queuing up outside the headquarters of the company at the moment, very worried about their savings. It is all very reminiscent of stuff that happened in many other parts of the world back in um, 2006, 2007, most recently. So I guess that the stakeholders here would be retail investors, the banks, the suppliers to the company, um, foreign investors and foreign bank lenders. Uh, I certainly haven't seen figures yet showing the exposure of developed country banks to um, this company. But one would assume that, you know, banks like HSBC, because of its geographic um, origination, you know, may, may have exposures here. So uh, it'll be an interesting one to see evolving. Yeah. And the thing that worries me about it, Jim, is the that that objective of changing the um, source main source of growth in the Chinese economy. They've got to make it a more 
a consumption-based economy rather than an investment housing uh, property-led economy. And this is what they want to achieve. And they've got to do it. Um, but can they do it without causing a financial accident? Because these property companies that are so heavily indebted, and it's not just Evergrande, do owe the banks, the state-owned banks, an awful lot of money. Now, the fact that they're state-owned means that we think that the state can control it. But the faster they go with reorienting the Chinese economy towards uh, consumption away from property speculation, the harder it is going to be for them to protect their banking system. And that really would be a Lehman moment if they, if they got that balance wrong. Um, the, the, they've got all, China's got all sorts of problems. Its demographics are turning against them. The, the, all that surplus property would suggest that they you know, are anticipating a huge rise in their population in coming years. But Chinese people aren't having um, children anymore. Um, we know all about the one-child policy, but even though that's been relaxed, they're, they're choosing of their own will not to have um, uh, a high number of children. And the, and the population is aging. And it's not inconceivable that the population could become static and even fall in, in years ahead. Demography is a tricky subject. So China faces many headwinds. Economists, Some economists call it the middle-income trap that countries get to a middling stage of economic development as a whole and get stuck for all sorts of reasons. And I'm beginning to suspect that that's where China is going from a, a number of perspectives, not least from what Xi Jinping is up to. Because I think that China became a rich or richer country on the back of the capitalist reforms that started in 1978. And it's a simple enough thesis of mine that if he's going to start rowing back and going back to Maoist socialist principles for running the economy... That means the economy won't do so well. So I think that the China is is always fascinating, but I think it's going to be that it's China's future is different to its past, and it's it's not nearly so rosy. It's not nearly so good news for the for the world economy that has been benefiting from China, both in terms of imports of cheap Chinese manufactured goods, but also companies that export to China and indeed have business in China, source profits in China. So I think that there are big changes coming. Talking of changes, Jim, the gas price has changed a lot lately, hasn't it? Um, what's going on? It, it has really become a massive issue over the last few weeks. Um, and as is normally the case in these situations, um, you said to me before we came online when I was talking to you about what's happening in equity markets today, for example, uh, you smartly said there are obviously more buyers than sellers out there at the moment. So you could say the same thing about uh, the gas situation, demand exceeds supply. Um, the demand is coming from, you know, we've seen unseasonable weather all over the world, um, both hot and cold, uh, but both very energy intensive weather phenomena uh, because of air conditioning and because of heating. Uh, we've seen a lot of extreme weather events all over the world. We're getting longer periods of cooling and heating as a result of that. Um, we've seen a strong rebound in the global economy, particularly the Chinese economy, notwithstanding the difficulties we've just discussed. But there has been a strong rebound in Chinese demand over the last 12 months. Um, Asia, generally, including China, is starting transitioning from coal-fired to gas-fired power. So that, that's driving demand. Um, and then on the supply side, um, you know, we've had serious production problems around the world. Um, exports and production have been hit by these extreme weather events. 
uh, European gas supplies at the moment are about 16% below the five-year average. And part of that is because during COVID, you know, production actually declined and switching production back on that quickly can be difficult. Um, in Europe, certainly, and it's certainly the case in Ireland, um, because of weather over the last, since the beginning of the summer, really, uh, wind energy has been undermined by a lack of wind, and hence there's more demand for um, gas. We've seen a lot of outages in liquefied natural gas LNG plants, and um, Russia seems to be limiting its exports of gas um, via the Ukraine. So all of this has culminated in a situation where since the beginning of the second quarter, uh, the European gas price is up 290%. US gas price has doubled. So really, it is a perfect storm at the moment on both the supply and the demand side. I am not an energy analyst, but the energy analysts I am reading are suggesting that as we come into the um, winter in this part of the world, that uh, obviously the demand for gas is going to rise strongly, and particularly if we get extreme winter weather as we did last year in many parts of the world. So demand is automatically going to pick up as it always does at this time of the year. And there are serious question marks over the ability of supply to match that demand. So the consensus would be that gas prices are going to remain at elevated levels throughout the winter. And that really it could be well into 2022 before we start to see a normalization of that situation again. And of course, if that is the case, and I, I would always hasten to add that there's nothing as difficult to forecast as the future, uh, but it does suggest that on top of a lot of other cost of living factors that uh, we're all going to be facing significantly higher energy bills over the coming months because gas is still, particularly here in Ireland, it is a very important component of electricity generation. So if gas prices are going up, that will impact on electricity prices um, in, in turn impacting on uh, consumer prices. So it is a perfect storm at the moment. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, it's made worse in the UK because the infrastructure for storing gas is just hopeless. They, the way in which the energy industry has configured itself in cahoots with the authorities, encouraged by the governments of the day, it means that there is very little gas in storage, at least certainly gas in storage that could anyway be described as enough. And there's also a multitude of companies that it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, have just amounted to speculate, be speculators in the, in the, in the energy space. And they, they have the label energy suppliers. There are lots of them. The theory was good. All these energy companies were allowed to set themselves up in order to create competition to drive prices down. And it seems to me that what they've done, uh, either deliberately or accidentally, is speculated on gas futures, if you like, that they've committed to supplying gas at a certain price to British consumers. And it's turned out that the bet they made, which is that the, they would pay for that gas at a lower price than they ended up charging the consumer, uh, that calculation has flipped around. And that the, the, the wholesale price the rises that you just eloquently described, means that they're all loss-making. So several of them have already gone bust. I think a couple went bust today, and there are lots of rumors about lots of names going forward. And it is a serious situation here. So it's a, it's a pan-European thing, this, this gas price issue. 
but it's particularly acute in the UK because, like so many other things, they haven't invested enough in energy infrastructure. There are admittedly other factors like wind and the rest of it. One of the interesting aspects of it is that when the gas price has gone up in the past, they normally switch on coal-fired power stations. And, of course, there's an extreme reluctance to do that to the extent that those coal-fired power stations even exist anymore. So it's it's a real problem. And the words cost of living crisis are being used in the UK now because it's not just about heating your home. Uh, it turns out that gas is an important input into lots of industrial processes, not least the manufacture of carbon dioxide, which means that people are talking about beer shortages and soft drink shortages that oh, gosh. Re- require carbonated inputs to make them fizzy. Uh, food shortages, animal shortages, meat product shortages, because CO2 is used in the stunning process in the killing of animals when they're being prepared for our supermarket shelves. And the chairman of Tesco has been on the wires in the last 24 hours uh, saying to people, don't worry, it'll be okay. There's no need for panic buying ahead of Christmas. (laughs) So now that's... Uh, of course, that comes on top of Kwasi Kwarteng, who's the UK Energy Secretary, who's a Business Secretary, or whatever his title is, um, saying in the House of Commons something similar about "Don't panic," and you almost want to "Don't panic, Mr. Mannering." For those of us of a certain age, <laughs> Which um, is exactly when you start to panic. Uh, uh, so I think that this will panic uh, UK consumers potentially. Uh, I'm a little bit worried, actually. I mean, it's very early days to be worried about Christmas, but when you think about people were starting to worry about empty shelves before all of this happened because of Brexit, because of COVID, because of HGV driver shortages, the fact that um, imports from the rest of Europe are being restricted in various ways. Uh, there were talk, There was talk of shortages on the shelves now and of Christmas problems before this latest installment of an energy crisis so i think you've got a perfect storm building here for boris johnson and co which if if something isn't done about it could lead to serious problems the other thing about this cost of living crisis is contained the clue is in its name cost of living crisis because uh uk inflation it's not as big a problem as it has been in the states and the bank of england still keeps telling us it's temporary in the way that every other central bank keeps telling us but the cost of living is going up. Prices are going up, not least the, the, the money that we need to find to heat our homes. But it will lead that via that CO2 shortage and all those other things to rising prices of everything. So this is on top of all of the pandemic related inflation that we were worried about that you and I have spoken about so many times. We've got another inflationary impulse to the economy, if you like. You add in, and this is where the UK always manages to seem to make it worse for itself these days, the tax rises that Johnson recently announced. They called them national insurance rises, but let's call them what they really are. The the personal tax rises that um, are coming in are going to be combined with rising inflation. So real incomes are going to be really smacked over the next while here in the UK. And that's not a good look for Boris Johnson And I think that his next 12 months might not be as easy a ride as his last 12 months, politically at least. And so, you know, I I do think the UK has building economic problems, the the same, many of which are faced by other countries, but particularly acute in the UK. Um, How does it feel in Ireland from an inflation cost of living budgetary perspective, Jim? 
Yeah, Chris, that, that that's fascinating about the UK, and um, we we are about to interview Duncan Weldon, uh, the UK author, who's written a book called Two Hundred Years of Muddling Through, and he has many theses in this book, but one is that um, economic difficulties create political volatility. So when we sit down with him tomorrow, I'm really looking forward to uh, trying to iron out, you know, how he sees all of these difficulties actually impacting on Boris Johnson. Um, you asked me the question about what's happening here in Ireland. Um, somebody um, I would regard as very well informed and very sensible was telling me in the last couple of days that his wife was now going to the supermarket buying up tins of tomatoes, uh, tin beans, um, ordering the Christmas turkey, etc., etc., because becoming seriously concerned about these supply shortages. But at a general level here in Ireland at the moment, and this is not unique to Ireland, you know, it, it is very definitely um, a global problem. But here in Ireland, you look at the CO2 shortage, as you said, it impacts on meat production, it impacts on the production of soft drinks, beer, but we're also seeing nothing to do with gas prices, but building material costs are going up dramatically, packaging costs are going up. There's a scarcity of HGV drivers, which increases the cost of transportation. Shipping costs have risen dramatically. And um, the cost of a standard 40-foot container has increased four times in the last 12 months. And um, taking, and this is a global rather than an Irish issue, but it it does feed in here, um, taking a shipping container from Shanghai to New York in 2019 would have cost two and a half thousand dollars it's now costing around fifteen thousand dollars so there there are and 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 the serious problems in the whole shipping industry globally because well suez crisis well the second suez crisis there um some months back you know has, is still having some impact but shipping rates are rising covid19 has had all sorts of distortionary effects so Generally, um, I think you could become very, very pessimistic about um, all of these price pressures feeding through to inflation, feeding through to business costs and so on. So um, I guess if there's one consolation, you know, we're not alone here. All, all of these problems are um, they're pretty much a global phenomenon at the moment. Um, the The whole gas and electricity thing is particularly uh, relevant here in Ireland, and we've seen uh, one of the electricity suppliers, Energia, I think, announced its third price increase recently. Um, and consumer prices uh, for electricity up forty percent since the beginning of twenty twenty one. And as I said, you know, we have a very heavy dependence now on gas fired electricity. So all of that stuff is feeding in. Um, I think if you want to be um, somewhat more relaxed about 2022, um, the expectation certainly is that higher gas prices today will increasingly bring forth alternatives such as US shale gas um, over the coming months. Um, The Nord Stream 2 pipeline from Russia to Germany um, is likely to be speeded up because of this crisis. And there's also, I guess, the suggestion that higher gas prices will actually reduce the demand for gas because of their impact in dampening economic activity. But but that's a little bit down the road. For the moment, 
you know, we, we use this word again. Uh, we definitely are in a perfect storm where all of these price pressures are building. And of course, I haven't mentioned what's happening on the labor front. We've discussed it in recent podcasts. There are shortages of labor in certain sectors. Wages are rising. So um, lots of challenges ahead as we emerge from this COVID crisis. And I, I suppose it is this COVID crisis feeding through in many ways. But when you get a lockdown of economies and then they're suddenly opened up, you are going to get a very strong rebound in demand. And that feeds into all of these pressures, basically uh, demand exceeding supply across many specters of countries and economies. And yet we keep getting told that it's temporary. That's what the central bankers keep telling us. How long does it have to last before it isn't temporary? And I think the answer to that question is contained in what you were saying just there, Jim. It's when we start seeing wages go up in a broad-based, sustained way that we'll stop using the word temporary and that we'll know that we've got a real problem on our hands. And that's when the markets, I suspect, will be far less sanguine about this so-called temporary inflation problem. I don't know which way it's going to go. Uh, but it's already lasted a lot longer than I thought was likely. In fact, I would have said that if, it had, if a few months ago, if you told me that we'd still be talking in this way in September, I would have said the time has come to stop talking about it being temporary. But so far, nobody is prepared to take the central bankers on. I'm going to yeah. do something a little bit different now, Jim, if you don't mind. Okay. And um, talk about uh, a journey that I did the other day, which was a drive from Ireland to Wales. and I'm, I'm relieved, Chris. I thought you were going to sing. No, no not, ne- never. Not me, Jim. Completely tone deaf. Uh, it's a, this is a journey that I've done many times over the last 30, 40 years. I first started doing it in the 1980s. And I remember the first time I ever drove from Wales to Ireland. I took the Fishguard to Rosslare ferry and then the road up from Rosslare to Dublin. And back in those days, long time ago, I must say it felt, the two countries felt very different, just observing it from driving through it, both countries, uh, particularly when going from Wales into Ireland and that road up from Rosslare, you might recall it back then, Go, it was, a, it was a rubbish road. It went through every little town and village, everything, the road itself wasn't great. The physical infrastructure that one was driving through wasn't great. Arrive in Dublin, and Dublin was a city back in the 80s that people were leaving. There, were, there was certainly no property crisis availability or price-wise in Dublin back then. You could, uh, as I did, sell a small one-bedroom flat in London and buy a rather large, nice house by the sea in South County, Dublin. Lucky old me. Um, so it was going from Wales to Ireland felt like you were stepping back in time somewhat, trying to put it as politely and as nicely as I, as I could. Certainly from an economic perspective, if not from a political or social perspective, it was a step back in time. Doing that journey in reverse the other day, I drove from Dublin to Cardiff, actually, via the ferry, and it's completely turned around. It feels to me now that Ireland is the advanced 21st century country and Ireland and Wales is a country that has either stayed the same or indeed gone backwards and that feeling of stepping back in time is still there on the journey but it's completely the other way around now Ireland is the advanced country with the proper road system proper infrastructure dynamic economy 
populated by people who clearly believe things are getting better. And Wales feels rather tired in the way that Ireland felt rather tired back in the 80s. Just amazing how things can change. And a personal note based on really um, not terribly scientific observation. I, I know that you've uh, you travelled between Britain and Ireland, or at least in a, in the pre-COVID world that you did. Would you would you share some of those notes, or or do you think I'm barking completely up the wrong tree? No, I would share them actually, and um, I guess a journey that I would do more often than to the mainland would be the UK mainland, I should say, Indeed. <laughs> would be Northern Ireland. And yeah. um, when I start doing that journey, initially you cross the border and suddenly the roads improve dramatically. And I remember uh, back in the 80s, I did the north-south motorcycle on many occasions. And on a bicycle, you really notice road surfaces. And when we crossed the border um, in Newry, uh, suddenly the road surface improved dramatically. I uh, haven't cycled up there in a while, but uh, d- definitely driving up, you get the sense that um, the roads infrastructure up there has fallen way behind down south. And um, I think that's one thing we should take our hats off to ourselves about, you know, the investment in roads infrastructure that started in the late 80s, built into the 90s and into the 2000s. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I would agree with you, but I'm, I'm kind of curious, Chris, um, the Welsh voted to remain within the European Union, as far as I remember. No, no, they voted, oh, sorry. To, they voted okay, to leave. Uh, okay, sorry. It was Scotland and Northern Ireland. Okay, I beg mm. your pardon. That's all right. So, um, uh, could you explain to me why Wales has fallen so far behind? I mean, is did this did this failure to develop actually feed into the attitude towards the European Union? Uh, because definitely here, Chris, um, EU structural funding was a huge part of the improvement that we've described. Uh, did that not happen in Wales? And is yeah, that well, why well, Wales got structural funding? I just think that the Welsh body politic was very poor at explaining to Welsh people how and where the money was coming from for um, the improvements that were made. Uh, I think the Irish were a lot better than the Welsh at getting their hands on European money. So I think the actual quantum, per capita quantum of money that went to Ireland was much more than it went to Wales. The The Welsh economy has had to cope with moving from an industrialised steel, coal type economy, smokestack industry economy into a modern economy and hasn't managed that transition very well. The advantage that the Irish have had has been manifold, but one is you, you, you haven't had those declining industries that you've had to deal with. You've had your own problems, but you, you've obviously dealt with them better. Uh, there are lots of reasons why I think Wales has fallen behind. Most of them, I think, can be put at the feet of politicians who've just made bad choices, bad policies. And I think that it's an economy that's been very, very poorly managed by politicians, both locally and in, in, and in Westminster. And for all of the criticisms that, that I know are th- thrown at, at the Ar- successive Irish governments about the handling of the Irish economy in many different ways, I think it's important to note just how well Ireland has done, certainly in a relative sense, also in an absolute sense. And you say, taking your hat off or patting yourselves on the back, you've done a lot of things right, Jim. You have. And so- sometimes I think you don't give yourselves enough credit for what has actually gone right in Ireland in recent decades. 
Um, perhaps, you know, it's, it's awareness. It, perhaps people just don't remember what it was like in the 1980s. I do. I remember what Ireland was like in the 1980s. And it's a society and economy transformed. And there are still issues. There are still problems. But boy, is it transformed for the better. Yeah, I, 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 w- I would totally agree. And in fact, today, um, a former Labour Party minister, Mervyn Taylor, who coincidentally was a TD in the constituency where I live, um, died. And listening to a lot of the um, obituaries at lunchtime, uh, you know, he, he he was really instrumental in getting divorce into Ireland. So that whole liberal agenda and many others contributed, obviously, since. But I think that whole move towards a much more liberal society um, has definitely played into that economic narrative. Uh, I think there's no doubt about that. But I, I think also it is important, and I, I take up on a point you made there about, you know, Ireland didn't go through these declining industry phenomena like Wales did. I mean, Ireland has been basically transformed from an agricultural-based economy over the last 50 or 60 years, and also an economy with an incredibly strong dependence on the UK economy and on sterling. So we, we have gone through this process. And uh, I think a key part, well, EU membership has been important for us. And as you say, we did use EU funding very well. Uh, but also the um, Sean Lamas from 1958 onwards, the first program for economic development, uh, where we suddenly became an outward looking economy that was going to be driven by foreign direct investment and by exports, um, that has had played an incredibly important part there as well. And I think one thing that Ireland benefited from that Wales obviously didn't benefit from was the affinity and relationship, historical and cultural relationship we had with the United States, which did make that job of attracting US multinational investment into the country um, somewhat easier. But we also had the foresight to go for a low corporation tax rate. There was a significant um, investment in education. So uh, policymakers did a lot of things right. And I think the challenge now is to, and I, I, I agree with you, we have done a lot of things right. But I also agree we do tend to be very critical. And I think the next challenge here is to try and um, get this GDP cake to address areas like health and housing where, you know, there obviously are problems. And if we start to address problems like that in a proper, meaningful way, you know, I think 10 years down the road, this country could be um, an incredibly attractive one in which to live. Well, I think it already is, Jim. And the reason why I would say that is if you've gone back to any Irish citizen um, in the 1980s and described what Ireland would look like in 2021, the Ireland of today, First of all, they wouldn't have believed you. They said that kind of progress just isn't possible. Secondly, they would have said any political party or government that had presided over that degree of economic success would end up being in government for life. And people would have, I think, assessed Ireland in 2021, if they'd been shown it back in the 1980s, as being close to something of a nirvana. Notwithstanding the issues that you rightly highlight, they would perhaps say that relative to the issues of the day that prevailed back then, they weren't such a big deal as we make them out to be. But that, that's, a, that's a sort of a what-if time-travelling calculation. But I do think it's interesting that the picture that's painted by some politicians of Ireland of this hellhole of a place where you know everything is going to rack and ruin actually couldn't be further from the truth. 
So let's call it there, Jim. We've, um, again, over, overrun and not done everything that we wanted to do. But let's look forward to our next one, which, as you rightly trailed, is a conversation with economic journalist and author Duncan Weldon. Thanks very much, Jim. Excellent, Chris. I look forward to that. Thank you. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.